You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Peak Church, located in Apex, North Carolina. Our church is striving to welcome all who are feeling disconnected from God. And so our hope is that over the next several minutes, you will connect with the God that we are talking about, and you'll resonate deeply with the life that this God wants for you. We hope you enjoy. The scripture passage for today is from the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verses 1 through 12. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You must have no other gods before me. Do not make an idol for yourself, no form whatsoever, of anything in the sky above, or on the earth below, or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow down to them or worship them, because I, the Lord your God, am a passionate God. I punish children for their parents' sins, even to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. But I am loyal and gracious to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. Do not use the Lord your God's name as if it were of no significance. The Lord won't forgive anyone who uses his name that way. Remember the Sabbath day and treat it as holy. Six days you may work and do all your tasks, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Do not do any work on it, not you, your sons or daughters, your male or female servants, your animals or the immigrants who live with you. Because the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything that is in them in six days, but rested on the seventh day, That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that your life will be long on the fertile land that the Lord your God is giving you. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning again, friends. Welcome back for our final week, uh, the final week in our uh, most recent sermon series uh, called Built Different. If you are new here to our church, or if this is the first time you've been here during this series, for the last several weeks, we've been making the argument uh, that uh, those of us who follow Jesus, uh, we've committed to a life of discipleship, of being a believer uh, in this God ultimately requires you to live a life that looks different, looks unique, might even look a little bit strange to an on-looking world. Now, the caveat is that it's got to be, if it's going to be different, it's got to be good different, right? It can't be bad different. It can't be a bad different where they look at us, they look at the life we lead, and they say, hmm, I want no part of that. Uh, Unfortunately, there's uh, quite a bit of that going around, but um, we need uh, to be examples, witnesses of a life, of um, a a legacy, uh, a way of which of embodying and incarnating ourselves in the world that cause people to have curiosity, have hunger, have thirst for what it is that we feel like we have found in Jesus. Uh, Today, uh, we're continuing this conversation, and really what we've done uh, throughout the course of the series is kind of narrowed the focus a little bit. We've said, you know, there's so many different forms this can take, the the uniqueness uh, of our Christian life and witness in the world, but specifically, we want to hone in our relationships. And so for the last couple weeks, we've been talking about how should our relationships with our partners, with our kids, with our friends, with our family members, how should those look different when compared with other examples of relationships found in the world? If this is the first time you're joining us, I'll catch you up a little bit. So uh, week one, the answer to that question was uh, part of what makes Christian relationships different than other relationships is number one, who's involved? 
who've evolved. We believe that uh, as Christians, whenever we're in relationship with anyone, uh, that God is the center of that relationship. God is the foundation of that relationship. Church, church uh, language, we use, we talk about that a lot, but what does that mean? What does it actually look like to have relationships uh, where God is a part of them, not just this person we sometimes use as a consultant when things are going haywire? Week two, we talked about not only uh, what, uh, who's involved in those relationships, but what they look like. That is another thing that marks a Christian relationship from a, an, another type of relationship is the types of things you'll find in that relationship. And last week, we had a conversation about what does it look like to embody uh, a generous posture of grace and forgiveness towards people when they make mistakes and possessing sort of radical empathy in our relationship. We talked about those are things that ought to be unique to us, unique to when we show up and how we show up in our relationships. And today we're going to wrap up this conversation. And specifically, uh, we're going to enter into a conversation that historically we have not been very good at. Today we're going to talk about something that Christians for a long time have really struggled to sort of figure out and get our minds around, which is this. How uh, in, in our relationships and the sort of uniqueness of them what are the parameters of our relationships? What are the limits of our relationships? What are the sort of guardrails that we ought to have in our relationships? Put very, very simply, today, we're going to talk about boundaries. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about boundaries. And four days before Thanksgiving, I can think of no better topic than to engage a conversation on good and healthy Boundaries. This is one of those sermons that you will not only be able to use in life, you'll be able to use it this week when inevitably later this week, four days from now, you bump into that family member who makes egregious sort of political comments or they want to take you to task on their religious sort of commentary or they make just downright offensive or inappropriate uh, comments or the worst to me it is the family member who shows up and in front of the entire family tries to make the argument that the best side found at Thanksgiving is cranberry sauce by the way, this is a live look at my home of what cranberry sauce looks like both before the meal and after the meal. <laughs> I feel like I can stomach a lot of things, I can tolerate a lot of things, but you gotta draw the line somewhere. And so if you're one of those, we can't share a meal together. I am so, so sorry. Kidding. Um, but if, by the way, if you are curious, this is the uh, Hall of Fame of uh, Thanksgiving sides. Number three is stuffing and dressing. Okay, hands up if you're like a stuffing and dressing sort of person. That's like the thing you're looking forward to most. Okay. Number two, uh, my second place, silver medal, is the green bean casserole. You could eat it all year, but I only eat it one time and it hits every time. Hallelujah. And then number one, uh, rounding out my list, is hash brown casserole. Anybody hash brown casserole fans in this? Good Lord, three again. There are moments when I feel like I'm succeeding in my job as a pastor. And then there are these where I feel like I've got a lot of evangelizing to do. And so uh, please come to me afterward and I'll help you uh, see the light. But real talk, real talk. Some of you later this week, uh, you're going into homes, you're going to be uh, bumping shoulders with people who... There's no other way to put it. They're hard to love. They're hard to love. 
Maybe you've got deep history with these people. You've got a past with these people. And so for you, whenever we engage this conversation, you find yourself stuck. And this is why Christians historically have struggled with this topic so bad is because we feel like we should and could be able to put up boundaries. But at the same time, we've got passages like where Jesus go, uh, Peter goes to Jesus and says, hey, when people offend me and they're mean to me and stuff, like how many times do I have to forgive them? Like seven times? Seven feels nice. That feels like a nice, neat number. I'll do seven. Jesus is like, oh, yeah. Yeah, mm, it's actually seven times seven. One translation says 70 times seven, which he's actually not doing a math equation. What he's doing is seven is the number for completion. So what Jesus is saying is you keep forgiving them until God's work is complete and done with them. So how are we supposed to put up boundaries with passages like that? How are we supposed to put up boundaries when we've got all these passages that say we're supposed to, Galatians, bear with one another in love? And furthermore, what does Jesus have to say about how to interact and how to love people for whom the relationship is super complicated and it's not always clear what it is they need, what it is we need, and what the situation needs? And so if you find yourself asking that question, let's dive in. If you got your Bibles with you, go ahead and return back to our uh, scripture passage for today. If you're watching this online, feel free to hit pause and uh, grab your Bible and head back to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, if you've spent any length of time in church before, you know that uh, why this uh, chapter of the Bible is so incredibly important is because it's the Ten Commandments, right? It's the Ten Commandments. And we didn't read all of them. We read just a chunk of them. But embedded within the Ten Commandments, these things that we as Christians have held to, we have, uh, we have uh, sort of based and founded so much of our faith around these commandments, these instructions. Embedded in there is a particular verse that tells you, that coaches you on what type of relationship you ought to have with your mother and your father. Or, and I think this principle applies to many of the family members who influenced you, raised you, or an integral part of your life. What does Moses bring down from the mountain to the Israelites? This word. Honor your mother and father so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Those of us who have uh, complicated relationships with our family members are saying, okay, so that's it. Um, is there anything more on like, you know, codependent relationships or people who um, make abusive and sort of uh, offensive claims all the time? Like, where's that chapter? Is that coming later or should I come back to that? Like, what's happening here? You might read this and go, I need a little bit more, Lord. I need a little bit more when I'm trying to sort of orchestrate and navigate a drama-free Thanksgiving later this week. And I would argue uh, that actually here in this verse, uh, God actually gave us a lot more than what meets the eye. This is a classic example of how the English language fails us. Here's what I mean by that. By far, by far in this verse, the most important word for us to understand is the first one, honor. This is who we're supposed to be. This is the unique sort of set-apart sort of expression of our Christian relationships we're supposed to have with these folks, particularly these folks who have raised us. What the heck does it mean to honor these people in our lives. Well, uh, in the Hebrew, uh, when you study and sort of unpack uh, this word, one of the things that you'll find is that the Hebrew word for honor is chabad, chabad. And uh, what's interesting about this word is that when you study it in context, you look at the other uses in found in the Old Testament and such, you'll find that one of the interpretations, one of the most common, one of the most popular interpretations of this word is to carry something heavy, 
which by the way, I would not necessarily use this Bible lesson on your mother-in-law later this week and say, this is uh, what I heard from the pastor and how I'm supposed to deal with you. I would, uh, I'll get nasty emails. Please don't do that. Um, here, what I love so much about what God is giving to us is God is giving us the gift of empathy. I feel like when this verse, using this word, what God is saying to us is God understands that some of you have relationships in your life. You have people in your life who, there's no other way to put it, you love them, you care about them, but being there for them enacts a physical toll upon you. You find yourself more drained. You find yourself weaker after having spent time with them. You want to be around them. You want them in your life, but you can only find yourself around them to a certain degree before you find yourself, your strength beginning to fail. I love that this is the particular word that was used here because I feel like it's giving us permission to feel that a little bit. It's giving us permission to say, I don't always know what it looks like to honor, to kabad my mother and father, because I'm still trying to figure out when am I supposed to carry it? When am I not supposed to carry it? How heavy can I actually hold it? How long can I hold it? And furthermore, this blew my mind. Furthermore, this word, it's, the Hebrew language is so dynamic. It's another translation of this word. Another interpretation of this word is not only to carry something heavy, but another interpretation of this word is this. It is to strengthen one's defenses. That other times this word is used in the Old Testament, it is referring to a moment when someone put a guard up, put a shield up in their life to protect themselves from someone else, for good or for ill. I'll give you a perfect example of this, probably the most shocking example of this. This is the same exact word that Exodus chapter 8 uses to describe what Pharaoh did in response to God. That Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. So now that's a little bit confusing. So am I, that, I, I always read that in the negative. That's something, that was a negative thing Pharaoh did. So I don't know, if, am I allowed to harden myself towards other people? And which one is it? Is it to carry something heavy? Is it to harden myself and protect myself against someone else? What is it? Well, my best read of this, my best read of this is whenever I study this in uh, context, and for us, what context means is this. It means that we always read scripture in and through the Wesleyan quadrilateral. John Wesley's the one who started the Christian faith. Uh, so, <laughs> whoopsie. Um, the Wesleyan denomination. Sorry, Lord. Just kidding, Lord. Sorry, Lord. He started the Wesleyan movement, started the Methodist movement, and he used to say this. He used to say that whenever you study scripture, it is important. If you want to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you need to read scripture with tradition. You need to pay attention to the people who've gone before you. You need to do so with experience. What is your personal experience teaching you about how to read and interpret this? And then reason. What does science teach you about this? And when you apply this tool to this moment here in Exodus, I think the best read, the most accurate read we can make of this is this. That what it means for us is that in Christian relationships, in Christian relationships, we have to be prepared for both. That sometimes God's going to ask you to carry something heavy. Sometimes God's going to ask you to carry for someone who needs your love, who needs your support, who needs your service. And, not or, and, there will also be moments in your life, relationships in your life, people in your life, who you are called to protect yourself from the harm they can enact upon you in their current status of unhealth. And so I want to back out a little bit. I want to ask, go back to this question we've been asking this whole series, which is this. 
Okay, built different. We're supposed to be different. We're supposed to be set apart. That's what scripture says. Okay, so there's a whole bunch of different examples of boundaries out there in the world. There's a bunch of different books that have been written on boundaries out there. What is our version of that? What is a Christian version of setting healthy and faithful boundaries look like? I think it looks like this. Number one, I think uh, it looks like us taking inventory and taking stock of our relationships and the dynamics of our relationship. And sometimes it is us setting boundaries because it is what the other person needs. It is for their sake that you are setting rules and regulations and parameters on how you're going to show up and when you're going to show up with them and for them. And we didn't make this up. This is Jesus. Jesus does this. In the course of the Gospels, there's this really interesting story where Jesus is commissioning the disciples. He's sending them out into these towns to spread the good news. And he has this line where he says, at one point, if you get to towns and if you interact with people, you go into homes with people who are not open to you. They don't want to receive you. They don't want any part of you. They don't appreciate you. He says this, you are to shake the dust of your feet, off of your feet, and move on. And when you read this at first blush, it feels really cold. Like, it feels kind of like, oh, like, Jesus, I don't know, that's a little rough. Like, what if they just needed a minute? What if they were just sort of trying to get their head above water about all the things that you were dropping on them and teaching to them? Maybe they just needed a minute. And I don't think it's actually Jesus being sort of short or being cold uh, towards people. I think actually what Jesus is doing here in Jesus' infinite wisdom is Jesus is actually reinforcing something that you already know is true. It's that there are some lessons in life that you didn't learn until someone walked away. Real talk. There's some lessons in life that you don't learn unless someone is brave enough to walk away from you saying, this doesn't work for me no more. There's some, I'll just go, I'll go first. There's some lessons that I could not have learned unless someone in my life who I loved, who I cared about, was willing to be misunderstood, was willing to allow me to feel the consequences of my actions instead of simply shielding and saving me from them all the time. What Jesus is showing us here is that sometimes the greatest teacher is space. If you don't know my faith story, uh, I'll give you the, the short Reader's Digest version. Uh, I didn't start following Jesus. I, just, I wasn't an active follower of Jesus until I was in high school uh, when my soccer coach led me to faith. But it's important for you to know that was not the first person who pursued me in that way. That was not the first person God sent my direction to try to introduce me to faith and introduce me to a relationship with the Lord. When I was in middle school, I had this basketball coach, Coach Sams, never forget him. And Coach Sams uh, was uh, one of those coaches that would cuss you out on uh, the basketball court and then talk about his love for the Lord uh, in the next moment, right after it ended. That's the South for you. So if you didn't play uh, sports in the South, that's the way it worked. Uh, but I loved this man. I, he, he cared about me. He showed genuine interest interest in my life and care in my life, and he tried to guide me, and he would introduce, not in a very pushy way, not in an awkward way, he would introduce his faith and his relationship with Jesus to me, but I was not ready. The only interests I had as a middle school boy were soccer 
girls in my MySpace account, okay? My MySpace account required a lot of time. I had to rank my friends, I had to put my favorite music out there, I had to update my bio every once in a while. It was hard work, it was really stressful actually. Well, I didn't have a lot of space in my life for the Lord at that moment in time. Fast forward about 10 years later, at this moment I'm in college and I get a chance to return back home to Georgia. And then while I'm there, I actually bump into him on accident outside the movie theater. And he's asking me about life, and he's like, we're trying to catch up, and yada, yada, yada. And he goes, well, what, are you, what are you studying? What are you, what are you doing? I was like, I'm, actually, I feel called to be a pastor, um, to which he laughed, um, which I didn't appreciate very much. Uh, but um, he, he explained, actually, his laughter. He said, you just don't get it. I, I felt like this responsibility for you for the longest time to, like, introduce you to faith and whatnot. And eventually I felt that it was actually coming to this moment. It was bleeding up to this moment where I felt like I was starting to treat you as a project. And that really bothered me because I learned that in that moment I could end up actually pushing you further away from God rather than bringing you close. And so I sort of took a hands-off approach and I said, Lord, work in his life how you see fit. And it's really interesting that this is what the Lord saw fit. Friends, it's really important that you understand this. Sometimes you have people in your life who you love and you feel like it's wrong. You feel like it's selfish. You feel like it's the counter opposite thing to do, to put space in between you and them. And whenever you feel that, I want to remind you of a really, really important verse in scripture. It's from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19 that says this, do not, I repeat, do not stifle the Holy Spirit. Now, there are two ways in which you can stifle and crowd out the Holy Spirit's ability to work in the world. Number one, you could ignore it. That's one way to stifle it. Just ignore it, suppress it, pretend God's not talking to you, pretend God's not pushing you to do something. You can pretend it's not happening. The other way to stifle the Holy Spirit is the exact opposite. It's to be so involved, to be too involved, to be so obsessed with your own agendas for this person or this thing or the way the world should look that you have pushed the Spirit out from having any ability to work, to speak, to breathe into that relationship. Sometimes it's not only healthy, good God, it's the most faithful thing you could possibly do to step away and say, come, Holy Spirit, come. So that's the first type. The first type of boundaries that I feel like Jesus talked about, uh, Jesus uh, encouraged us to establish and to protect and to enforce or boundaries for their sake. If you follow along closely, you'll also find another use for boundaries that Jesus had throughout the course of his gospels, which were boundaries for our sake. If you don't know this already, you'll find out fast that sometimes the reason why you and I so desperately are in need of boundaries is to protect you from you. 
Jesus has this line where he talks, so he's talking with his disciples. This is towards the end of Matthew's gospel, and he's talking with his disciples, and they're having this argument about, like, who's better and who's the best and who's going to be the best in the kingdom and who's going to sit next to him and have, like, front row seats to the whole situation. So they're having this whole argument about uh, greatness. And Jesus has this line where he says this. He says, whoever wants to be great among you must become a servant. Now, one of the things I love so much about Scripture is sometimes the most powerful thing about Scripture is what it says, and sometimes what makes Scripture so powerful is what it didn't say. I want you to notice with me that Jesus did not say, if you want to be great, you must become a savior, but a servant. Now, that might sound like semantics to you, but I promise you it isn't. You see, a servant understands, yes, yes, they understand that there's going to be times when God calls upon you to care for someone else, and it's super inconvenient, and it's costly, and it requires you to go out of your comfort zone. Servants understand all of that. Saviors do too, but what saviors don't understand is that if you go too far, you will begin to allow another person's toxicity, unhealth, and selfishness to not just inconvenience you, but to rob something from you that you can't give back. They will kill something inside of you if they have to because of their desperate need for whatever it is that they're searching for. And if we were really honest, so if you ain't ready to be this honest yet, and that's fine. Hopefully you'll just think about it and you'll come back to me when you're ready. But if we were really, 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 really honest, the reason why we try so hard to save the people in our lives, I don't know who that is for you. The reason why we try so hard to save other people has so much less to say about them and it has so much more to say about you. It has so much more to say about my desire to be helpful. I want to be useful. I want to do something of significance and importance in the world. I want to help God. And let's be even more brutally honest. Sometimes it's just because at the very end of the day, we just are so afraid of being alone. In college, I used to um, dabble in something we might uh, refer to as missionary dating. So missionary dating is you find a girl that you like uh, or a guy that you like, and uh, you connect with them on so many different levels. However, they don't share the same beliefs as you, and so you see that as your personal initiative and uh, a sort of a project to win them over for the Lord. What could go wrong? What could go wrong? And so I met a girl uh, for whom that was the case. We connected on so many levels, and I really liked her, and I also was new to faith, and so I was still sort of immature, fumbling around in my faith and how to express it in healthy ways. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to win her over for the Lord. I'm going to do it, Lord. We're going to do this together. Woo, here we go. And so uh, I would use every opportunity I could to talk about faith. I used every opportunity to welcome her and invite her into spaces where transformation could happen. And pretty, pretty soon, I started to obsess about every action or inaction she took in regards to her spirituality. I took immense responsibility for the fact that she wasn't further along, she wasn't closer, she didn't want this for herself. And it wasn't until long after we broke up that I tried these tactics on another person 
that I finally saw what was so unbelievably wrong about that. I'll never forget, I was sitting in church one day and this other girl that I invited to church didn't show up and so I'm sitting there fuming about it. I'm just like, I don't understand, Lord, like we're doing this together and why are they not here receiving everything that we're talking about? And I felt this like still small voice. I still remember it today. Remember like it was yesterday. I felt a still small voice whisper into the depths of me and say, who are you doing this for? What do you mean? Doing this for you? Doing this for the kingdom? Doing this for the church? Like, what are you talking about? Who am I doing it for? We're doing this together, I thought. Where have you been? I'm pulling my sort of into the bargain. Where aren't you showing up? And I felt that voice just sort of come back at me and say, yeah, you sure about that? Oh, no. You sure that what's driving your obsession with, I mean, there's no other word, converting this person. You sure that ain't just for you? You sure that's not just because you're new to faith and you're insecure in your standing and your faith, and so you just need some validation. You need someone else to believe the same way you do because you're so afraid of standing alone. I felt that voice say to me, she's my daughter, I'll take care of her, you take care of you. You see friends, sometimes the reason why Jesus is so desperate for us to put up healthy boundaries in our lives is not because, not only because they have the ability to impact and influence someone else's life, but because they might they might just be the very thing that gives God the chance to save you. And it wasn't until I started making space for that in my faith, it wasn't until I started actually wrestling with that that it actually led to a whole bunch of new questions. And so now, whenever I engage in my relationships, do I do so perfectly? No. But one of the things that I try really, really hard to do in my relationships, all of them, is I try to ask very, very different questions. For example, whenever I'm in a relationship with someone else and I'm thinking about them, I ask these questions. God, what are you trying to do in their life? Not what am I trying to do, what are you trying to do in their life? What do they need from you, not what do I think they need, what do they need, what do you know and your infinite wisdom about them, what do you know they need? And this third question requires a boatload of humility, which is, am I actually the person to offer that or not? Do I have the strength, the maturity, do I have any of the wisdom to offer that? What is my role actually with them? Do you need me involved at all. That's so something Jesus would do. In his paradoxical world, it's in our inaction that sometimes God can take greatest action. And I also started asking fundamentally, questions, fundamentally different questions about myself and about my own life and what I need. I started asking questions like this. Uh, God, what are you trying to do in my life? 
And when I think about this relationship, this person I'm dating, this person I'm, uh, I'm in friendship with, this person I'm uh, uh, working together with, does this relationship help? Is it sort of a value add to what you're trying to do in my life, or is it hindering what you're trying to do uh, in my life? And if it's not necessarily clear, what rules and boundaries do you, do you need me to create and do a whole lot better job enforcing so that, God, you have the ability to move, you have the ability to teach, you have the ability to lead me in the life that you want me to have. God, I know I'm supposed to love everyone. I'm supposed to love them. But should I love them up close or from afar? I'll close here. Banjing, come on up. You see, as those questions were listed up on the screen just a moment ago, some of you uh, know all too well how hard and also how important boundaries are in your life. And some of you, as you're sitting here today, you're thinking uh, more along the lines of those first batch of questions. You're thinking about someone in your life, maybe it's someone you're going to see later this week, someone who uh, it is obvious that God needs to do some healing work in them. God needs to mend some broken pieces inside of them. And you know that starting today, what might be required, your role in that might be to get out of the way so that God has more ability to speak and more ability to breathe, more ability to lead them to where they can actually find that thing that we're all hungry and starving for. And meanwhile, others of you, it was actually the second batch of questions. Others of us, we're sitting here, we're wrestling with this, thinking about our own life and the healing that needs to happen in us and, and the broken pieces that need to be put to, back together for us. And so right now, you're, maybe for the first time, maybe this is the first time in a long time you've even thought about your environment. You've thought about who are the people I'm keeping company with and where are they leading me and how are they impacting me and are they bringing me closer to who God wants me to be or do I find every single time I'm around them, I'm a more negative person, I'm a more despairing person, I feel like I'm a more selfish person. And so right now, maybe you are the one that's sort of thinking through, good Lord, what boundaries do you need to put up for my own sake? If I want to have a shot at finding this abundant life. And I want to encourage you today that if you're still on the fence about whether or not boundaries are important, whether or not they matter very much, whether or not they are mandatory or optional in the kingdom of God, just let me remind you of this. That friends, every single time you put up a boundary that Jesus has called you to put up, it's not only a healthy choice, every time we do so, you're creating an opening. You're creating, you're cracking the door for God to be able to do it again to do that same thing that God has been doing for centuries in the hearts and lives of God's people. You're giving God the opening again to speak a word of freedom, to speak a word of healing, to speak a word of guidance, to speak a word of direction. It's you finally getting out of the way, not stifling the spirit, not crowding out the spirit or boxing them out. It's giving an opening so that God can actually move and change and transform again. If you're not ready for that, I get it. But if you are, start today. Start asking these questions today. Give God.
God, the opening. Let's watch him move. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. All God's children said, amen. Thank you for listening to the Peak Podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever podcasts can be found. For more information on how to get connected with our church, please visit us at thepeakchurch.org.